0: During the Mass homily, I made a decision to bump one thing into this talk, thinking, well, it was a long gospel and I already was going along with other stuff, so I bumped it here without thinking, you know, now it's like 3 o'clock in the afternoon and we're in a warm, sunny space and just a great time to take a nap. This is probably a bad idea, but I'm going to... I'm going to go ahead and, and pick up the piece that I left from the other one. We've been talking about story. We've been talking about um, Israel's story and, and the idea of being brought into that. And one thing that I want to touch on that has, over the last couple of years, become more and more clear to me through a couple of different authors, especially Pope Benedict and N.T. Wright, but some other uh, people have hit on it in different ways, um, is just to appreciate the concept of the exile and what that meant in in the story of Israel when we talk about it. When we, when we approach um, Jesus' time, the single most important fact for them is the exile. Um, so just I'm going to really briefly give you some background on that and then pull some things on that, and then, and then I'm going to talk more about meditation. But I think it's become a huge meditation point for me because I begin to realize it connects into all the other pieces. And I was like, where was this for the first 30 years of, of my uh, Catholic formation? Um, and maybe much longer in Christian formation. But anyway, um, so... You guys know the basic gist of this story, right? So... David is a good king, right? Except for when he's not. Um, David has a son who's a good king, except for when he's not. David and Solomon build the powerful unified kingdom, right? So Jerusalem is its, temp- is its, its capital. It's got the temple. It's got the 12 tribes of Israel. great. But the problem is Solomon's son, Rehoboam, is a jerk. And so that's why you have this split between the 10 northern tribes of Israel and the two smaller tribes of Judah. So you got that's the split. And for about 200 years, that's how they exist, like an exclamation point. Um, and then uh, in 721, the Assyrians, people from Nineveh, very bad people, very not nice people, show up and they conquer the uh, people of Israel, the ten northern tribes, and deport them. All right? and uh, so that's 721. That's about the time that Isaiah is writing his his uh, book of the Bible. And then for about another 150 years, Judah hangs on by itself, the two tribes. But they've got the temple, they've got the king, they've got the, the bloodline, they've got the capital. So, you know, they think they're in better shape. And then in uh, 537, Nebuchadnezzar uh, comes and conquers them. Luckily, he doesn't just utterly wipe them out the way the Assyrians did with the north and spread them to, um, uh, the, the, you know, far distant, you know, winds and different... Uh, edges of the universe. Um, But instead, all of them are taken into exile in Babylon. All right, and they spend 50 years there, roughly, um, depending on how you count it. And then they, uh, did I say 537? They come back in 537. 587 is really when they're taken away. Um, so when they, they come back then in 537, and, uh, and so that's, that's kind of basically the timeline of the exile. And really, there's not a whole lot else that happens other than the Maccabees between the return from the exile and Jesus' time, uh, in, in terms of big, big stuff. And the, the Bible is pretty quiet on that. Um, the thing that, that I want to point out here is, First of all, how huge that was. It was the cataclysm of their memory. Um, You know, in in their lives, they couldn't imagine. Because think about it. Like, Abraham was promised this land. They lost it temporarily going down into Egypt. But then God did even greater signs and wonders to bring them out of Egypt, to bring them into the Holy Land. And that's really when they became a nation, right? I mean, it was... You know, like 400 people, and that includes, you know, Jacob, his sons, his grandsons, his great-grandsons, slaves. 400 people went down into Egypt. And then, you know, a couple hundred years later, you know, it's thousands, tens of thousands that come up to make the nation of Israel up there, you know, after uh, Joshua and the judges come through there. But what that means to be an exile is they've lost the land and they've lost their king. They've lost their temple. It, it, it means that they, they've, they've lost, every, in, my, in their mind, they've lost everything, because that was the promise. So, just think about it. Land, holy city, temple, the Shekinah. Do you guys what the Shekinah is? That's the glory of God, the presence of God that lives in the temple. They've lost the Shekinah. Uh, they've lost his uh, divine presence. They've lost the kingly line. They've lost their independence, right? So, everything is lost, and there's like, we were toast, And then God has this act of mercy and lets them come back geographically. But I think the most important thing that that was the news to me was to realize, but they didn't think the exile was over. They did not believe that coming back, sure, geographically they're back, but the temple is not like it was. You can read um, in the book of Ezra how they're literally crying, those who remember the old temple, and say, you know, this is not what we used to have. It's this shrunk little state. It's not independent. It's run by pagans, whether it be the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans. They They are, you know allowed to exist in this little rump state, you know, surrounded by their enemies and sometimes, you know, are able to practice their faith in freedom and sometimes it's, it's corralled. So when you come to the time of Jesus, that's an important thing to remember is they do not feel the exile is over. Part of it is when you take the exile prophets, especially Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, this was what was promised. You will come back from exile with the following. Don't bother writing them down. Return of everyone back to Jerusalem, not just a handful. You'll have even greater lands. You'll have victory over the pagans. You'll be free from foreign control. You'll have now amazingly fruitful land. Good luck, it's Jerusalem. Um, You'll have a glorious city which people will stream to, a restored temple, holy priests, a return of God's Shekinah, his presence, which will last with you forever, righteous kings, an unbreakable bloodline. They will purify the land. They will eradicate idolatry. Oh, and just for bonus, the lame will walk, the blind will see, the deserts will bloom, um, the 12 tribes will somehow be brought back to life, you'll have a new covenant renewed for you, Um, your hearts will change, you'll have justice and peace, and your sins will be forgiven. Now, how many people in Jesus' time felt that even 10% of those had happened yet? Very few. They'd be like, we're back, but we're not back. We're still in exile, we're still, I mean, yeah, we're, we're in Jerusalem, but but this is not all the things that they had been thinking. And think of how in their mind it works. You know, if you have the land, you have a place for the tribes. If, the place, if there's a place for the tribes, the tribes can go up to the city. In the city, you find the temple. What's in the temple? That glorious presence, that Shekinah, which is what? A sign of God's love for you. So when you lose those pieces, God doesn't love us anymore. That's why I said there's that flip. We think that, you know... Um, The idea of being, you know, uh, coming back to the family is an image for forgiveness of sins. For them, it was the opposite. The phrase forgiveness of sins would be the proof that you've been brought back to the family. That's what they focused on. And the idea was that in exile, we're out. We are the prodigal son. We're in the far-off land waiting for that to happen. To them, exile was literally a living death. The prophet Ezekiel shows that with the famous prophecy with the dried-up bones in the field. Uh, And when Daniel had that prayer that I talked about that we say at the altar, we have in our day no priest, no prophet, or or sacrifice. We have no temple in which to worship you. That was how they felt even when they came back. So it's an important thing to realize that in their mind, there was a sense that the exile had not ended. And specifically, Daniel is told that. Daniel is praying one day in Babylon, and he says, Lord, how long do we have to wait? And he knows that Jeremiah had been promised 70 years. Then the angel Gabriel, by name, shows up and says, "Uh, Yeah, sorry, no, not 70 years, but 70 weeks of years. Which had to feel awful, right? This idea of now we're taking 70 times 7. Have I heard that before? Yeah. Okay. So he's told this to me 490 years now before they're going to go back. So that, but that creates a sense of hope, even though they're like, now we're waiting, but like, but we now know when. That's why there's all these messianic expectations. When Jesus shows up, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one who is promised? Because they're waiting, thinking, yeah, no, this, we're really waiting for this moment uh, to come along. So that's an important thing to have in your background when you think about what Jesus is doing. He's not just dying for sins. He's not just, like, opening heaven. He's literally fixing the problem of exile, that have been going on and on. And they've been expecting that in a military way. He comes with something bigger. One last thing I want to throw in on that then. Um, notice, and you only get this if you ever go through the Bible in, in a long you know, study, but God is all about unfinished business. It would actually be incredibly depressing to read the Bible only with a Jewish lens or only get the Hebrew books. Like if you know, the author had died before he could finish, like, oh, I only got volumes one through four, and they're all really sad. Because all his stuff ends really unfinished. God is kind of a downer. So, like, the entire thing ends with Malachi. That's the last book of the Old Testament. And Malachi has kind of this scary warning at the end, but even that's not particularly positive. Malachi, if you want to look at it. It'll make sense of why they're looking for John the Baptist in the way they do. Malachi is the very last book before Matthew, because it's the very end of the Old Testament. Malachi 3, the very, very end, the last thing, is this kind of weird warning, um, just that um, I will send Elijah the prophet before the day of the Lord comes, that great and terrible day. Uh, And he says that um, to turn the hearts of their fathers to the children and the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with doom that's not the happy ending you're looking for, right? If you are if you a Jewish person today and that's your last book of your Bible, that's really depressing and you're just waiting for Elijah. Remember, we're told by Jesus, John is Elijah, John the Baptist. But even if you looked at all the other sections of how the other books end, the end of the Torah is Deuteronomy, which ends pretty negatively. Deuteronomy, the, 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 the necessary book of, or the, the last book of the necessary part of the Torah, at the end of that, we're told that Moses dies and we've never had a prophet again like him. Chronicles, the end of the historical books, ends even sadder by them saying that we have, like basically we've lost our land to the exile, our kingly line is cut off, there's no prophets, and no one knows what to do about the idols. So each of these books ends really with a downer. Even Genesis, like the original book of the story that tells the family story, ends with them going down into Egypt. Apparently God doesn't know how to write a happy ending, right? It's really pretty sad when you think about all of that. So let that be kind of some fodder for you when you think about that longing and how important it was that someone comes to tie up this story, that someone's going to come led by Elijah. Announced by Elijah, someone who's going to come and, and restore the fortunes of Israel to return their hearts to their fathers. Someone who's going to come to lead them out of Egypt, a spiritual Egypt, and someone who can who can restore all those things I listed. So when we see the lame healed in the Bible, it's not just the idea like, oh look, Jesus is God; he's got power. No, it's a sign that that renewal is finally happening and that exile is finally ending. So okay, like I said, there was the risk I took about talking about this when it's warm and. Sleepy in here. Okay. So instead, to make sure you definitely fall asleep, I want to talk about meditation. That's a joke, Uh, but it might happen. So we've talked about scripture and we've talked about big story. We've talked about important aspects. We've talked about different tools we can use and stuff like that. But what do I actually do that's going to help me pray better? In general, our best way to pray for most of us is to meditate, right? We know that vocal prayer is good, but it only goes so far, right? We know that part of our job as Christians is to go beyond just saying our prayers. Even our vocal prayers are meant to go deeper. If you've been praying the rosary for 50 years and all you do is say the words, I'm not going to say you've wasted your time, but you were supposed to get farther, right? If all you do when you say the stage of the Cross is just read the words off the page, again, it's good, but like the goal was to get farther. The actual indulgence having to do with the rosary is not for saying five decades of mysteries. It's literally for a certain amount of time spent meditating on the mysteries of the rosary, which, mean if you, which means if you spend 20 minutes and only get through like two, cool, you got the indulgence. right? It's literally set up with the idea, I'm meditating on the mysteries of Christ's life through the eyes of Mary. That's the actual prayer of the rosary. We just happen to break it into these nice little chunks of five joyful, five luminous, thank you, John Paul, five sorrowful, five five glorious, as a way to kind of, like, organize it. But meditation is a thing we're called to do. You might know that there's vocal prayer and then meditative prayer and contemplative prayer. Contemplative is the highest, and if you hear from like uh, Father Dubé, that is something we're called to get to. I don't know how to get there. Like I said, this isn't my job. I'm not that retreat director. And I'm not sure that anybody can really tell you how to get there. I know I've contemplated before, I don't know that I've ever sat down intending to contemplate and had it happen. Usually it happens for me when I'm doing something by accident. I remember um, I was in the seminary with this guy. Uh, He left. He married this great girl. Um, Their first child came along, and I got invited over to meet the new kid. And they actually hadn't, like, showered or eaten in about three days, so I got to hold the little sleeping baby. Sleeping is the key. Uh, While they, like, got to shower and eat for the first time in, like, 72 hours. And I just held this little kid, and I'm like... I'm like 23, and I'm just staring at this little kid, and like they came back already, and they're ready to take her back, and I was like, that was quick. i like, it's been 40 minutes, and I was like, I can't believe it. I spent 40 minutes just staring at this kid. You know, like we say about the Eucharist, lost, all lost in wonder. Like I truly contemplated staring at this insanely small little ontologically independent entity. Um, and, and just marveling that God makes these things. That's probably the first time in my adult life I held a baby. And and I mean I mean to this day it's just as a thing I think back like, that was contemplation. I was lost. It's crazy. That kid I think is a ninth grader now. Um but, uh, it just, I mean, that to this day is a moment of that, but I can't teach you how to get there. And most spiritual people, spiritual director types would say, no one can teach you how to contemplate and you actually can't do it on your own. It's something God gives you. It's a gift. It's infused. So what we, most of us do is we work on meditation and make openings where God can lead us to contemplation. For more on that, talk to people who actually know what they're talking about. Or read a book from somebody who knows what they're talking about. So I'm going to talk about meditation because that's one thing that all people are, even right now, capable of doing. When you sit and let your thoughts wander, maybe during this talk, um, you know, or you're just drifting off, you're meditating. You might be meditating on dumb stuff, you know, like a basketball game or, you you know, how you're, you know... Dog is doing right now, you know. But that's meditating in a sort, right? It's our minds processing, working through. When you have a nervous breakdown and anxiety rules your life, that's just meditation gone bad, right? That's just you taking the meditative device of your brain and going in the wrong direction. The word ruminate, which is uh, the the Hebrew word for meditation, would actually be closest to our English word for ruminate, comes from what cows do with their room, right? They literally. Chew up their cut and bring it back up and chew it some more and take it back down. They are you are literally chewing and re-chewing and spitting back up and chewing some more, an idea, a topic, a scripture, something. That is the closest thing to the Jewish concept of meditation. And you can see that when you see the little guys bobbing at the uh, western wall, the wailing wall, you know, doing their little head-bobby Orthodox Jew prayers, right? Like there is that, that repetition. That's them ruminating on, on the, the scripture, the verse that they're, they're doing there. So we can meditate. We just need the right things to meditate on to get the most effective stuff. I'm going to talk about three kinds of meditation here. Um, the first one, and I'm not going to go really deep because, again, there are people who really know this. Um, but that's the Ignatian method. And probably many of you have experienced it or heard about it. Again, there are people who know it way better, so I'm not going to try and go where I can't go. But in general, Ignatius talks about three steps for anything, not just meditation. In the, the standard Ignatian method for any activity is experience, which leads to reflection, which leads to action. So like a person who does a 30-day retreat or who reads Ignatius' spiritual exercises, they do something, usually a meditation, which is an experience that leads them to a reflection of where they can go from there, and then they make a choice of an action they're going to do. So when you apply that to, like, meditation, the most common thing you hear with, when people talk about the Ignatian method, what they usually mean is pick a scene in the Bible and experience it. Put yourself in it. You know, so a common one is um, the story of uh, the blind man, Bartimaeus, on the side of the road. And because the time is short, I'm not going to go through it, and people have probably done it with you before. And you would like read through the the scripture and then decide where you're going to be in the scene. Are you Bartimaeus? Are you one of the apostles? Are you just a passerby watching? Are you one of the people who's calling out and telling him to go? He's calling you, go. You know, who are you in that scene? And then you read it again more slowly, and as you kind of digest, ruminate on it, you picture... Other things. And he would say, ask of questions like, where are you seated? What do you see in your angle? What's it smell like? It's always a good ignition one. <laughs> What's it smell like? It's a great one for the, the uh, nativity. It smells like donkey. Um, what are you hearing right now? What are people saying? How are they saying it? And you just kind of walk your way through at different parts and just kind of let yourself. You know, it's, it's an imagination game. That's where you're meditating. You're putting yourself in that moment. So that would be the experience. And then for reflection, you would take that and then be like, what do I get out of that? And again, I'm, I'm not going to dive super deep because this is an easy one to find more on. But to take that out and then be like, okay, so what do I get? And you're like, Bartimaeus, a blind man, when told, go, he's calling you, gets up and leaves his cloak. He's a blind man. And he left his cloak. He must have felt certain that he was going to be able to find that when he was done. Which means he felt Jesus was going to heal him. And what does Jesus say? You have great faith. Be healed. Right? So you're like, you're like, okay, I need that. I need the faith, the trust that will leave my cloak behind and run after Jesus. And you start to meditate. What is my cloak right now? What am I not willing to let go of that I need to have the faith, the trust that I can leave behind and run? And then you figure out what that is. Then you move to your third thing, action. Okay, when I leave this chapel or when I go back to my normal work, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to be afraid to speak up about this thing, even though I'm afraid of the consequences, but it, because right now my cloak that I'm holding onto is people's respect for me and, and how I appear to them, and I'm gonna choose to do the right thing, even if that makes me seem weird. I'm gonna run doing the right thing. So that would be like an Ignatian thing. Now, you might do that over a half hour, or you might do it over 10 minutes, um, you know, but, but it, that would be kind of a standard, and again, I'm not giving it full justice, but that's because it's one you can find elsewhere. Um, so that's, that, that's kind of the Ignatian and put yourself in the moment thing. The next kind of meditation is, is, is similar, but what do you do when the scripture you're reading doesn't have people, right? What do you do when you're reading prophecy or wisdom literature in the old Testament, or you're reading Paul in, in the new Testament, right? What do you do when you do, I mean, have you? By the okay. Side thought: I sh, This was actually listed earlier, but I skipped it. Have you ever noticed? Um, no, you know. Never mind. I'm gonna save that. I will save that. There's a better place for that. I'll come back to that. Uh, it'll make sense when I come back to that later. It'll make sense. Um, so now I've made a mess of this. Um, I was trying to find a good place to show this example, and it'd be way too easy to cherry pick a passage that um, that would be too easy. So I just started flipping through Paul, um, knowing that he has some of the harder stuff, and um, and so I just landed on Ephesians 5. Now, everyone knows Ephesians 5 as the great, like, marriage example, right? Wives, be obedient to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ of so the church. But no one pays attention to anything else in the chapter. Um, turn to Ephesians 5.1. So if you're looking in your Pauline letters, you got your big ones. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. And then after you clear Galatians, you're ready for Ephesians. If you hit Philippians, you've gone too far. So like I said, I, just kind of, I didn't want to cherry-pick. It'd be too easy to pick like 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. That'd be too easy. Um, or something else. I just didn't want to pick something I couldn't handle. Um, but this is a, a chunk here. Ephesians chapter 5, 1. See, there's that first little block, 1 to 5. So you look at that, and you're like, okay, there is definitely no characters in here. This is not a roadside scene. This isn't even a stinky barnyard animal scene. I got nothing here, right? It's Paul... Talking about stuff, right? Big words, because it's Paul. Lots of commas, few periods, because it's Paul. Um, so what do you do with that when, you, when you're ready to move on to meditating on, different, on things that are like that? I think an effective method here um, is a kind of close reading. We talked about close reading to get extra stuff out. But letting it be as a meditation. So what I would do on this passage, I would read through it once at a regular pace. Just to understand what this thing is about. Because as Paul, it might be kind of tricky. Then I would read it a second time slowly. I'd read it a second time, just kind of like taking a longer, slower read. This is kind of my, my close reading. I'm not trying to like do scripture study. I'm just reading it again, getting a little deeper. And uh, maybe, maybe some things are hitting me. Some words are popping up. Some ideas are popping up. Maybe there's already some meditation stuff as I go. And that's okay, right? You can, you can just, you can do that. And then, for the third level, where I'm really going to meditate, I'm going to go through that and read it, not necessarily slow, but I'm going to do it word by word or chunk by chunk. So, I'm going to do something like this. This is me. I'm going to do this out loud for you, but it's going on in my head. So, be imitators. Imitators. Be imitators. Imitators. And then I'm in my head, I mean, it's hard to do this out loud, I'm thinking, what does imitation look like? What would an imitator look like? What would I do if I imitate? But I'm just doing that as I say the word. I'm letting the word draw up things for me. I'm not trying to like, take off in different directions like the reflection that Ignatius might do. I'm just going, imitators. And then once I've kind of squeezed some juice out of that, I might go to the second part of that clause. Imitators of God imitators of god of god imitators of god it's really hard to like say this out loud and like because obviously it's in my head but also in my head i'm doing the next part as i kind of like to kind of squeeze this lemon and get juice out of it what do i get as i ponder imitator of god and then i might even read the whole line again so be imitators of god and then once you've kind of feel like you've kind of rung some good stuff out of that then you go on as beloved children as beloved beloved and just let all the connotations all of that come up and what you're doing because you're reading in order you're also unintentionally pulling what you had before i'm an imitator of god because i'm a beloved child and then you would go children Children. You don't always have to do it three times. I'm just doing that, probably because instinctively I, I think in threes, you know. But you'd be squishing stuff out of beloved and children and beloved children, and maybe even read the whole line: be imitators of God as beloved children. Because what do children do? They imitate their parents, right? You take on your parents speech patterns. You take on um, you know, the, the, the way in which they think, the way they tell a story. We take that on, and you know that. You're like, kid, where'd you learn that? Never mind. Don't tell me. I don't even want to think about the fact you probably learned that from me. right? You know. And so, I mean, you, a person could spend a good chunk of time going through word by word, phrase by phrase, line by line. You don't always have to jump back and do the bigger line. It's Paul. You're, he's got long sentences. But just kind of letting different parts speak and letting them just kind of float up. I'm not necessarily chasing down new ideas, trying to create new paths. I'm letting it kind of come up to me. But I might, at a certain point, like, you know, like, read a, a chunk together, especially if I see a connection. And then when I would finish, I'd read it one last time through at a decent pace and let the whole thing hit me as, as, as that. And maybe then you might jot a few thoughts, but the goal is not necessarily, you're not Ignatius here where you're trying to, like, make an action plan. It might cause you to do some actions out of that, but it's more a true chewing and ruminating on the word there. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's the that's, that's second style. The third one is um, a totally, I don't know, kind of different one. Turn to your, your next book of the Bible, which is Philippians. I already told you Philippians has all the good stuff in it, and it does. Turn to Philippians 4, which is chock full of good stuff. If anybody happens to follow my homilies that I put up on the blog, you've already come across this one, perhaps, uh, because I did it a couple months ago, back in the fall, I think. So apologies if it's a repeat. So Philippians 4, eight is pretty famous because it's literally Paul telling you to meditate and telling you what to meditate on. So it's a pretty unique verse because it's literally a place that you can get meditation fodder for days and weeks ahead of you. So, Philippians 4, 8, pretty famous verse. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there is any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise... Think about these things. So, just to diagram the sentence to short shortest possible thing. Brothers, think about whatever is the following. True, honorable, just, good, worthy of praise. So, he's telling us these are the kind of things Christians should think about. He's saying, this is stuff you can meditate on. It doesn't have to just be Jesus' life and actions or Mystery of the Rosary, or what God was doing in this Old Testament passage, or even another part of Paul, he's saying, you can just do these. So I have here my book from a retreat in uh, August of 07. I was sitting about where Andy is, um, and, uh, and I was sitting there, and, uh, and I had a holy hour, and the priest had referenced this passage, but hadn't done anything else with it. And I started writing down these things, True, Honorable, Just, And underneath that, in that hour, I started writing down everything I could think of that fit. So for true, remember, I'm freshly out of the seminary at this point. So I write down things like Thomas Aquinas, G.K. Chesterton, Tolkien and Middle Earth, especially Lord of the Rings chapter 2. Because it's like the best reflection on human nature ever when when, uh, Frodo and Gandalf are discussing Gollum and the Ring and, and Frodo. No, Bilbo. Um, conversations with a particular friend who is kind of a philosophy nerd, and, she, always and I, she and I always have great conversations. And I just, every conversation I've ever had with her is just filled with truth. Father Chris Goodwin, my good friend from the seminary, now working in Washington, D.C. When I think of true, I think of that, and I have like 10 more things after that, but those are things that I wrote down. And I spent probably five minutes going through pondering what is true. When I did this in the homily at church, I actually had people, I told them you could take out your phones or scribble in a book or whatever, and I had them actually slowly do that. I'm not going to do that because you have plenty of quiet time here. But then I went to like honorable, and I started writing down, Um, actually literally the sibling of one of you is in this book uh, under honorable. It's kind of funny. And I named like my best friend from high school, and I talked about... Um, good social dancing and uh, a a guy who's a friend of a friend who was in the marines and told a story about a soldier who gave up his life in iraq Um, things like that what is honorable Um, so i I just did that and i went through all of them I, i would love to read you all of mine but you know, that's not the point here. Um, but it, it's a great exercise. And you could easily fill a holy hour just making your eight lists. That would easily be... And, and it would be, in a sense, already a meditation. You would, have, you would have truly meditated for the hour. But then, I would say a step further, you just got yourself a bucket of meditation topics that you can use in the future. You could say like, okay, my next holy hour after this one, I'm going to sit down and I'm just going to meditate on what's just. And maybe you don't even get through your whole list. Maybe you get to the second one, that says the cross, as mine does, and you start thinking about, yeah, the cross is just, it's justice for the human race, and one was unjustly condemned on that. You could, you could spend 10 minutes on that one word right there and then you'd move on to other things. Who's just? My grandma. She was incredibly just. She was an accountant, so when she said you could have a couple of chocolate chips, you only could have two. If you took a third, she called you out and said, that's a few, not a couple. She was just. Um, Father Barr's corrections. I was the deacon under Father Barr at St. Joseph's. He corrected me. I resisted at first because I was proud and didn't like to admit I messed up. Four years later, I could admit they were just corrections. But like th- those are things where you can have you know you can have a whole holy hour and not even finish your entire list of things for one of these and, 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 and it 's a great way to just dig stuff up and then you 've got stuff you can come back to I mean this is eleven years ago, and I still come back to that list when I look for stuff to meditate so it 's a different kind of meditation, but it 's literally paul 's short form instruction on how do you meditate now realize you 're not meditating on a scripture verse here. You're meditating on what God has done, and you're letting, like, you're giving praise and gratitude to God for the things he's done. The uh, the, the uh, Benedictines talk about meditating on the book of scripture and the book of nature. Um, and some people also include it in the book of experience, but I think experience and nature kind of go together there. So the book of what God says in his Bible, and the book of what God says in everything else. This is kind of meditating on that second book. And I think you'll be amazed. You could pass an hour and a half here writing up your eight little lists and be like, whoa, uh, my butt's kind of numb, but i got an awesome list right now. I didn't even realize 90 minutes had passed. Because you can have some great fruit there. I'm not saying you need to do that in this holy hour, but I'm saying it's a great thing if you're trying like, I don't know what to pray about. I don't know what to meditate upon. Philippians 4, eight. you will... You will go a long time working your way through all the stuff that you yourself can generate just thinking about those eight different things.